tuned in to Word of Mom Radio here on the Word of Mom Media Network. Welcome to the Village Vision Podcast, where community collaboration and care converge. I'm Dr. Crystal Morrison, and I'm honored to be your host on this incredible journey. As a firm believer in the power of a united village, I'm thrilled to bring you inspiring stories, research, and projects that break down barriers in child and family care. Through heartfelt conversations with experts, advocates, and those with lived experiences, we'll showcase the transformative impact of collective support. So join me on the Village Vision podcast as we explore the remarkable collaborations that lead to better outcomes, foster a sense of community, and inspire action to improve care for ourselves and everyone around us. On today's episode, I'm here with Petrinia Buxmati. Petrinia is a wife, mom of three, advocate, education consultant, and founder of Kaleidoscope Collaborative. Petrinia works with communities and schools to create inclusive learning environments, and she splits her time between Houston, Texas, here in the United States, and Ghana in West Africa. Welcome. Thank you. So we were chatting before we started recording, and I know that your little ones are downstairs, and like I said, I <laughs> yelled at my kids to make sure that they're quiet. So we'll see how long this lasts, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you hear any yeah. background noise? It's, it's Everything's fine. Actually, here come one of mine now about homework. Sorry about okay. that. <laughs> no okay. No worries. We're okay. We're good. No worries. Well, listen, you know, I was really excited um, to talk to you just about everything that you're doing. But um, I know for everyone that we talk to on this podcast, there's always a very human-centered reason behind the work that that we're doing today, right? There's, there's mm-hmm. always a personal reason. So can you tell us a little bit more about your personal story and your background and, and how that led to the work that you're doing today? I don't know even where to start. I've, I've, I've probably told this story, you know, thousands of times now. Yeah. So, um, you know, career-wise, I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. I think I've always been like that teacher type, Yeah. <laughs> probably since I was a kid. And so I've been teaching and leading schools for 20 years or more. I, like you said, am a mom to three, and my oldest is nine. I have an eight-year-old, and I have a six-year-old. My mm-hmm. middle child is is on the autism spectrum, and so my journey into learning differences really started with her. You know, I was a principal at a school for gifted learners before she was born, and we started a family, and I think about a year after having her, so I knew she would you know, get an autism diagnosis, mm-hmm. and it just shifted the trajectory of what I thought, you know, like my typical career life would be like, right? But being at heart an educator, I was fully committed to figuring out what it would mean to parent a child with a learning difference and what it would mean to teach a child with a learning difference. That's just a part of who I am. And so I took the turn that that life took me towards and mm-hmm. trying to discover that. Very early on, we learned by age two, she was reading, she's hyperlexic, also autistic. And so just the process of learning what all of that means has just really shaped me as an educator and gave me just a broader perspective of how unique human beings can be. Um, I had a child who was, who is, or I'll say speaking in past tense, who was 
you know, severely speech delayed, but could read. No one taught her to read, right? So it's like, how does this happen? Yeah. It just was sparked so many different questions. And so just the journey to teaching her how to speak spontaneously by first giving her things to read, it's sort of like really counterintuitive, yeah. you know, Feels from backwards. How we- <laughs> exactly for how we typically you know teach people to read first we learn to speak and then you learn to read um and so it it just gave me after some time of really learning like this child can learn and um i'm enjoying discovering how uniquely she is as a learner when i was ready to go back to work and my kids were ready to start school i just felt so privileged with what i had gained <laughs> from getting to know who she is. I just felt so privileged. I would say even gifted in a sense to be able to share that joy with schools and with other parents who would, you know, enter into this same journey, you know, years after me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that brought me to the Kaleidoscope Collaborative, um, which, you know, as you mentioned, is, is an organization that really tries to build partnerships between schools and community members to really create, um, unique learning experiences for students, mm-hmm. regardless of how they learn. Um, so that, that's sort of a, a sort of piece the story together, but um, that, that's, that's really it. It just really shaped what I'm doing today, you know, between Houston and Ghana, as you mentioned. Yeah. I, I love the fact that you use the word privileged, privileged that you had witnessed and absorbed and the, the way that your daughter learns and continues to learn and how different it was because, you know, as you well know, as, as parents, when we receive a diagnosis about our child or, or we know that our child is not considered typical on some measure of whatever that is, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very disheartening. It's very frustrating. It can be very frustrating, but there are those very real instances when we take a step back and once we realize how our child can start to process information and learn things differently, it's like a key, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, you have this amazing key that unlocks your child exactly. and you're just like, no, wait, they, my child can learn, does learn, is learning more than you can possibly comprehend. Exactly. <laughs> Trust me, right? So I, again, I love that you use the word privileged because it, it really is true. Mm-hmm. I loved chatting with you before about your experience in, in Ghana in particular, and I would love to hear more about the collaborative, and that's something that you've started in the Houston area. You continue to do work mm-hmm. at the intersection between education and community, but tell us more about the type of work that you're doing in Ghana right now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and I never know where to start with all of this. It's just like I know. a mouthful of <laughs> Um, so with Ghana, I am, so, so I could, I should say sort of like technically I'm helping to launch a, a, an international preschool here. I'm contracted mm-hmm. as a head of school consultant and building a lot of, um, systems and processes and professional development modules just to sort of help the school be able to run on, I would say on its own, but so if I were to step out, right, there are sort of mechanisms in place to continue to empower and educate the teachers, work on assessments for students and all those kind of things. At the same time, the director or the founder of the school 
is not unique in wanting to stay inclusive. Mm-hmm. So you and I have had this conversation before about my experience being here in Ghana over the last 10 or 11 years. I've been coming back and forth and having that experience of always feeling included, even mm-hmm. as a family with a child with special needs. From the time, you know, my young, my middle child was two years old, I always felt embraced and no, there was no, there was no othering. We just didn't feel different. Yeah. That has been my experience culturally here in the schools as well. But, you know, the interesting thing is I don't know that the community here, they don't see it any other way. So what's very interesting now is the terminologies are starting to show up here in terms of like neurodiversity and inclusion. And like, so there's these words to behaviors that have already been in place Mm -hmm. for a long time. So part of my work at the school too is sort of like, I think, bringing out that terminology. So for example, when I was working with the director on the marketing for the school in this second year um, that they're really sort of formalizing, I explained to her some of these terminologies mm-hmm. and that there are there are families in Ghana who are looking for these places and they know the terminologies, although a lot of the community does not, right? If you have a child yeah. with special needs, you kind of at some point learn the language. And so that we could start to put some of this language on her marketing and things like that. So working on that and, and building in sort of like inc- maintaining inclusive practices, I would yeah. say, as she starts to expand and as families start to learn this language and shop around um, having specific policies and practices that help her and, and her staff talk about it in ways that are recognizable to, mm-hmm. you know, potential families. And so the work in, in the school is twofold. But at, at the same time, I'm still involved in a lot of awareness projects. Um, I'm mm-hmm. a part of a special educators group here. I've been a part of that group for about a year now. And um, just doing attending a lot of workshops and doing a lot of public speaking, again, about different types of therapies and OT and doing some trainings around universal design for learning. Uh-huh. I've done some parent trainings specifically for parents here in Ghana around universal design for learning and how to use that as an advocacy tool to help design sort of like learning processes and programs for their children when they're partnering with teachers. So one of the things that I just wanted to highlight, maybe talk through a little bit is what you're describing about Ghana or where you're at in Ghana is that the idea of inclusion and care is embedded in the culture itself. Um, So you're, you know, part of your work is highlighting what is already part of the culture and what is already part of the way people behave and interact. Whereas in Houston, you're trying to educate people probably in a lot of ways on, on how to be more inclusive. So talk a little bit about those differences that are kind of rooted in the culture between how you're working in maybe Houston versus Ghana. Yeah, I feel like this is a large part of my personal and professional development here is is trying to find language to talk about what are those pieces that make these experiences so different, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about, let's say, um, maybe some of the cultural differences, I, I feel like one of the easiest things for me to recognize is the relationships between people. And I think mm-hmm. when you and I spoke before, I told you, for example, there's no word for like cousin. Yes. 
in yeah. the language here, right? Uh-huh. So my husband, for example, and, and his his for his closest cousins, their their siblings. The term for it would yeah. just be like a brother or a sister. And the same with you know the, the relationship with children. So for example, at the school and where I'm working at now, the the kids there call me auntie. Yeah, <laughs> Auntie Trinia. And so there's these, like in the culture, in the language, this automatic sort of relationship. There's no, again, no othering, right? No one yeah. is really an other just by the nature of the language if you were to translate it. Mm-hmm. And so I think the expectations bound to that language, right, really shape the relationships and how I you agree. treat each other. Yeah. And so, and that ricochets. So when you're Auntie Trinia in a school with, you know, 50 preschoolers, mom and dad expect you to be Auntie Trinia, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And to take care of that child as if he or she really is your niece or your daughter, really, because we we really refer to the kids as our sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, my experience in Houston and just growing up in the U.S. in general, that's just not the case, right? We are much more siloed and much more nuclear family and, you know, all those things that the way I define it is we just sort of have a lot of hands-off relationships with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Where here it's, it's just the opposite. And so when I say we've been embraced, I mean that figuratively and literally Yeah. <laughs> here when we come, she's just really taken in and people love her and just <laughs> for who she is, you know, so that, that's sort of like where I'm at with being able to really, pick apart the pieces. And so, you know, my, one of these messages, I'm just keep trying to really say to myself and sort of keep finding definition for is just person centeredness, right? Like systems here are responsive to people. It's not the opposite and the other way around where, where people are at the mercy of systems, right? Systems have, they have the ability to be flexible and respond to the needs of the people within them. And I find it it happens very, very easily here. So my, you know, just not only in um, building a school here that is responsive to the needs of of the people that are showing up and working with the families about what they need. So for example, I'm working with one family now who has a, a daughter, she needs an aid, like at school, you know, called the person an aid that we would need. But here I've advised her to get, the term would be a facilitator that the family can hire, or it could be a nanny or whoever, and you send that nanny to the school to offer support to the child. And then that nanny also goes home with the child, right? That nanny goes to therapy. There's just that continuum of care, right, that we work really hard to try to build at home oftentimes with people who just don't know or interact with each other that often, that regularly, that easily, right? So so the, I guess those are just sort of two little pieces I've been able to get at in terms of trying to pick apart the differences, right? Because then when you want to go back and do the work, even in the advocacy space in Houston, it's like, how do you speak about your alternative experience? I think uh, to your point about that human-centeredness, people-centeredness, and, you know, from my experience doing the work that I do, especially here in the United States, we have a lot of systems and processes in place and we tend to believe that one size fits all is more efficient, right? (laughs) It may not be effective, but it's more efficient. And we have sort of this opinion, whether we say it or not, that being person centered requires a lot more effort. 
And the reality is that it might appear to require more effort, but it doesn't necessarily because that, you know, by meeting people where they are, Mm -hmm. you're still using your foundation. You're just making some modifications to make sure Mm -hmm. that, you know, their needs can be met. I have experienced in different cultures where I've seen firsthand the absolute adoration of children. Yeah, absolute adoration of children first and foremost. And so everything else just falls from that. And so I would love to see a lot of what you are learning on the ground there. You bring back to the United States. Yeah. (laughs) It totally rocked the whole system. I know. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I would say the same thing here about being here in terms of the adoration of, of, of children. And I've said it before, sort of like in previous visits back home to Houston, is I feel children are just celebrated, you know, yeah, all the time. And you just get this sense that everybody's rooting for every child. You know what I mean? I was talking to a mom today, and she was talking about her son's experience at, at their school where they're at, and she said, you know, they just see him. They just see him. It, do, it just doesn't really matter if he can't talk. They just see him. And, of course, that I think there's a lot involved in, in that. It's, that's, it sets the expectations for the interactions between the child and the school and the staff. Like, when you just see a child and not what they can or even can't do, right? It sets a different set of expectations. And I'll be honest with you, like, I feel like there have been, not I feel like, I know there have been moments, especially when we first arrived just before I started work. So I'd say, I guess over the summer where it was me, like, I felt like I was not operating at, at a level with the highest expectations. You know what I mean? For yeah. her. Because say, you know, I want her to learn to swim. I'd want her to do this or that. And in a sense, I'm used to saying that. But at the same time, I expect it to be a bit complicated. I always always expect to have to fight for it. And it's just not going to be that easy. And, you know, all the stuff that you just carry with you. But no, instead I got, she'll do it. She will do it. Just relax, mom. She'll do it. And she has done it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I say it, it really does set the bar when a community or a system can be responsive enough, you know, or I would even say like aware enough to just see children, right, and provide what is necessary. And I know that sounds, I don't know, maybe it's easier said than done, or maybe it it should be easier. It should be easier. Yeah. Yeah, it, it should be easier said than done. And I think that is is the value of a culture, again, that complete adoration for children and connective tissue and relationships across the entire community. And I absolutely understand what you were saying. You know, I was shaking my head as you were talking about swim lessons and such, because as a parent, I also have three children and They have very, very different needs, and one does have a diagnosis of autism. And I understand what you're mean because you put on almost like that badge of mama bear, and you're like, okay, what am I going to have to do or say to make sure that my child has access to swim lessons, right? Mm -hmm, And you've almost got like this badge, this armor on like, okay, this isn't going to be easy, but I'm going to go in, I'm going to advocate for my child and I'm going to do what's necessary. And then you have this lovely person come into you and say, just give me that baby. We're going to go swim, right? (laughs) 
right? Yeah, like, exactly. They're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, she can come here. She's fine. It's like, well, you just feel so disarmed, and it's like a loss. Yeah. Yes. And that really, like, I'm really trying to embrace all of that emotional. I would um, honestly, Crystal, I will call it emotional trauma. Yeah. That I've not been aware that mm-hmm. I have carried I think being in systems that are not as responsive as they should be, it it has been an awareness of trauma for me as a mom and as an advocate for other parents, you know, and so part of my experience here is being aware of that sort of baggage and then really just trying to sort of psychoanalyze myself in a sense, right? <laughs> I think my my goal is that it gives me more clarity of where to push when I'm back home, you know, in Houston, like where to push and also how to find allies. Mm -hmm. I think you start to recognize a little easier where your allies are, who's worth fighting and who's not. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm getting a sense of, of that as well. One of the really great things that I'm a part of here, I'm happy to be a part of here now and that I've thought a lot about as I'm a part of it here. You know, inclusion, and I think we use the term sometimes early intervention at home, but here yeah. it's not, it's really just inclusion, and it's inclusion very early. Okay. Very early. So at home, like, my experience would be, okay, early intervention. You know, when my child, I was first starting in this journey, and she was uh, younger than three, then any sort of engagements, we call that early intervention. Right. And it is early intervention, but I have a, a different disposition towards it in a sense because I almost see that as terminology again for a system that doesn't easily welcome or embrace children in those early years right Mm -hmm. and and I think where I'm going with this is the school I'm helping to build here and and it's it's not unique in this takes on children very early. It's just a school. It's just a Mm -hmm. regular school. It's a private school. We have public schools and private schools here. And the kids come early, but the main goal is just mainstream. I'm in a mainstream school. Bring in whoever you need to bring in, the nannies, or if you want to hire a facilitator, just bring them on. And I'm just, I've been able to see just how impactful those experiences are for young children. Just that normalization from the very beginning being in schools with their peers and having that community push in mm-hmm. as like a normal part of school operations. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember telling my husband just as I was starting, and I think I was doing school observation at the beginning. Uh, this is back in June. So I was observing this happening with children before I then started the work of trying to capture this and maintain it and talk about it in, in these real terms, in terms of like marketing for the school and everything. But telling my husband, you know, there's that Again, some of that emotional trauma that started to come up thinking, you know, if we had just had her here earlier, mm-hmm. right? In a sense, like not having to, I don't know how to say this in a way that I know that it's making sense, having not had to deal with or fight, bump my head up against a system that yeah. made me yeah. feel like there was something other that my child needed to do <laughs> yeah. Yeah. before yeah. they could sort of like be okay and go to school, right? Or do all this stuff. There was that awareness, like sort of early in this journey that I'm, you know, I I just really value. And one of those things that, you know, when I'm home and and doing the advocacy work, I know now like really how to speak up for and like push for, and I think in the right circles, right? Yeah. Figuring out where, where your battles need to be fought and who they need to be fought with. 
Yes, yes. I absolutely agree with using the term trauma because I really do think it is trauma. It's not just using that term, but it is real trauma related to parenting and and back to this idea of putting on your armor and going in for the fight and being on guard to be able to get your child access to the resources that they need, but the resources that they deserve that should be readily available, right? Mm -hmm. I definitely understand trauma on that. And then Mm -hmm. you you mentioned your allies. And, you know, what I've found in this, well, it's still a fight, call it a fight. I found that your allies are not necessarily the people you expect to be your allies or hope will be your allies, right? It's oftentimes the, you know, people that are involved in your community or have had similar experiences or had similar cultural experiences, let's say, that really look at education and family and community in a different way that in your case are your your allies. You know, you might hope in the city of Houston that people in government and in education might be your best allies and hopefully that they are, but that might not necessarily be the case. It may be mm-hmm. somebody else that has had very different experience that's your best ally. And sometimes it takes not getting disappointed about who's not your ally, but yeah. really locking arms with those who are, right? <laughs> yep, it's true. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 true. Like you could you can find allies in places you didn't you didn't know. And I I think that even in my experience and in sort of thinking out loud about this too, even in the search for allies, you know, let's say at at those sort of like government levels, mm-hmm. it, it might be harder to find who those people are. But in your immediate community, I really do think that also comes back to me for being person-centered and just really trying to connect with people and and get a sense of who people really are. And I I think what what holds those allies together is just that genuine sense of connection. And I think that that can be, it can be hard to find that, harder to find that when those relationships are entangled in systems again, right? Yeah. (laughs) That keep us in little blocks, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I can think of just even experiences working in Houston, working as an, as a parent advocate, working with principals in other schools. In one sense, you connect on that human level, you as a parent advocate, or you as just a parent and the principal. But then at the same time, there are these systems and other sort of just rigid requirements right, that keep those relationships at bay, right? They don't, yeah. You don't get to connect as much as you would or could yeah. if it weren't for those things, right? And so for me, right, that outcome has been that the kids just make much lower progress in many ways, not just in terms of learning goals, developmental goals, but just in terms of building a community. And yeah. we all need community. I think, I think that is the, the most healing thing. Yeah. And it sounds very, very simple, too simplistic, but it, it's really the ability of people to really connect. And some would say, call that just love. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that really elevates, I think, human development. It's just been something here that I've, I'm still really grappling with. You know, I'm still really grappling with how, even now, Crystal, and I've been here, this is like six months now, you know, I still go in with this armor on in most cases, just 
trying to support my daughter, you know, yeah. this is outside of working in the school. And, and it's, I think every single time I feel so out of place because nobody's expecting me to need to fight. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's expecting me to need to fight. And I don't know what to do without, <laughs> without that system yeah. having to fight. But not having to, to do that and just sort of hand her over and have all of that encouragement and that hope and that affirmation for all of us, for us as a family unit, for her as a child, it has been such an uplifting experience. But I won't, uplifting doesn't speak to actually her progress, real developmental progress faster than I know it would have ever happened if we'd still been in the U.S. right now, but it's not unique to what I see on a daily basis working in the school that I work in, uh-huh. supporting the school that I'm supporting now, and also talking to other families like mine who are here and being in this sort of more responsive environment and seeing, you know, their kids also make a lot of progress. So, yeah, you just can't say enough about the need to really connect. And that just goes back to the theme I said earlier, you know, with being, you know, remembering to be very person-centered. You know, I read somewhere, I believe it was Dr. Bruce Perry in his book called what happened to you? And it's about trauma. He's one of the foremost trauma experts. And one of the things, one of the many things that stuck with me is community equals connection and that equals healing. This mm-hmm. idea of connection, we all crave connection. We need community. And those things together promote healing and recovery and care, right? Um, And, you know, so much of the theme of everything that we've talked about today has been the cultural aspects that really honor and value community and connectedness and human-centered, person-centered care uh, versus, you know, other cultures that are more system-based and siloed. And while there may be phenomenal access theoretically to care and therapy, we don't have that connected tissue of community Mm -hmm. and connectedness. And this is something that I believe in my soul because I grew up in, in a very rural place in the United States where community and connectedness were still sort of the hallmark of how we lived on a day to day basis. And you just don't quite have that anymore here in most parts of the United States. Mm-hmm. So there's so much to be said for that. And I can't say enough about how important it is. And you're living it on a day-to-day basis in Ghana. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a blessing. I'm probably learning more than I'm, I'm able to, to teach here. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm learning so much. I'm sure you can relate to it's like being in a position where you're taking it. Oh, well, I guess I attribute it to sort of like language acquisition. It's like you hear everything, you're taking in everything, but you just can't quite express yeah. <laughs> in words, you know, what's happening to you. And that's the position I'm in mm-hmm. largely now. It's just really been an an incredible experience. But we'll be home again in December for some time. Yeah, I'm just going to have to do a lot of writing and just really trying to process everything and do my best to, you know, offer what I can when I I get home to meet all of my fellow advocates back in Houston who I've been away from for some time. Yes, well... (laughs) We're going to have to wrap up today. Uh, obviously, love this conversation. What's a really a key message that you'd like to leave our audience with today? 
this has been my mantra, I think, too. It's just working very hard to understand what it means to be person-centered for a system in an organization to really see the people within it and build a culture around people responding to people. (laughs) Because, you know, most often we have people responding to systems and, and systems they can never take the place of, of another human being. They are good for efficiency, like you said, but mm-hmm. efficiency does not always equal effectiveness. And yeah. I think my experience here in Ghana with person-centered, you know, community relationship-based culture, we are really seeing a really good impact on children here, especially children with learning differences. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Joining thank me. you so much. Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Village Vision Podcast. I hope you found inspiration and valuable insights from our conversation today. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review, and share. But thank you. Thank you for being a part of the Village Vision Podcast on Word of Mom Radio. Take care, and let's keep shining a light on the power of community, collaboration, and care. She is sure, she is sure, she is strong, she is strong, she is true.